This week on Best In Show, we're talking owl goggles and Stetsons with Killers of the Flower Moon costumer Jacqueline West and what you need to know about the winners of the 2024 Sundance Film Festival. and welcome to Best in Show, a limited podcast series brought to you by The Letterboxd Show. I am Mia Levicino, West Coast editor here at Letterboxd, and Best in Show is all about awards season. We meet contenders from this year's movies, interrogate insiders about the film ecosystem, and we look into the Letterboxd data about the noms and gongs, but mostly we do what we always do here at Letterboxd, celebrate cinema. And here again to celebrate cinema with me are my best in-show besties, Hollywood veteran, and our editorial producer, Brian Formo. Raindrops keep falling on my head. (laughs) And our editor-in-chief, Gemma Gracewood. No rain here. It's sun, sun, sun. Also joining us today is our lead Sundance correspondent and New York reporter, Adesola Thomas. Hey boy, what up? (laughs) So soon, 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 I promise Gemma and I will talk to Oscar-nominated Killers of the Flower Moon costume designer Jacqueline West. But first, in news. Congratulations, one and all. We made it out of that Oscars nominations gauntlet. And I was so overwhelmed that I forgot to even mention last week that Zazie Beetz and my boy Jack Quaid announced the nominees. So I'm saying it now to atone. We love you, Zazie and Jack. Thank you for your service. And hang out with us sometime, maybe. I don't know. I don't know, like today? What are you doing? Yeah, if you're free, I don't know. Uh, as, as they did with Zazie and Jack announcing the nominees, the Oscars, I mean, they're getting really serious about attracting young cinephiles. First, they put Mia Lee Vicino in the press room last year, and news <laughs> in this week is that Amelia de Moldenberg of Chicken Shop Date has been appointed Oscars ambassador. I, I, it's a great title. Um, and this is in the same week that she had a chicken date uh, with best in show bestie Paul Mezcal. <laughs> Amelia, come join us for Winner Winner Chicken Run Dinner sometime. It seems right up your alley. Wow, wow, wow. So, yes, long story short, things are getting pretty serious. As of right now, Academy voters are, hopefully, ideally, we pray, cramming in as many nominated watches as possible before Oscar voting kicks off on February 22nd. But... There are even more votes to be counted, including for the Film Independent Spirit Awards. And Brian and I are getting all of our nominees logged as beautiful, perfect, angelic, independent spirit awards voters. Right, Brian? Yes, we are just like Kirsten Dunst. Uh, although if you're listening to this and you are a film independent voter, it doesn't open till February 1st, so you're not missing out. You just have to get it in yes, by yes. February 12th. Like Kirsten Dunst herself, we will be getting all of our votes in on time, doing our due diligence, checking off each and every film on our Spirit Awards watch list. So a quick round of thoughts on what we've seen, shall go we? On, go first, me. I want to go first. I want to go first. Okay, I watched four Daughters. So this film is directed by Cather Ben Hania. Tunisia submitted it for consideration for Best International Feature, and it ended up earning a nomination in a different category, which was Best Documentary. It's also nominated in the Indie Spirits in that category. And get this, it won Best Documentary at Cannes, so you know that quality is high. It's, I just watched this the other night. It's so interesting. It's like borderline experimental, taking apart layers of narrative. It's about a Tunisian mother named Olfa with, hey, get this, four daughters. Who would have thunk? And it just tells this 
wow, this this story about two of them getting radicalized by Islamic extremists and then they disappear. And then the documentary consists of her telling that story along with her two other daughters. And it's like told through interviews and reenactments and they're unpacking, you know, how they unlearned internalized and externalized misogyny, how they embraced sisterhood, how they broke these cycles of intergenerational trauma. Woo! Woo-hoo-hoo. It's a heavy one, but super, super necessary. Gemma, what did you watch? Mia, I also watched a film about mothers and daughters, which is also a documentary and also up for best documentary at this year's Film Independent Spirit Awards. And I promise, listeners, we did not plan this. This is a happy accident of our letterbox diaries. I watched uh, Bye Bye Tiberias by Lena Soalem. Now, she is the daughter, the director is the daughter of actress Hyam Abbas, who, uh, as suckheads will all know, is <laughs> Masha Roy, wife of Logan mm-hmm. Roy in succession. Um, Hyam was uh, born and raised in a Palestinian village and then left. She is the one of her multiple siblings to have left Palestine and moved to France to pursue her dreams as an actress. Um, and so it's a beautiful film, very patient, um, sometimes very funny, quite inventive and creative. Uh, Hyam does a bit of acting, as do her sisters, uh, reliving past memories in front of her daughter's camera. And it's, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a really interesting film about exile and displacement and memory and how women uh, maintain matrilineal lines, uh, even when sisters and mothers and daughters live miles apart. And uh, it's especially important and emotional to watch right now. And uh, if you are in the States, it's screening in a very few cinemas on the East and West Coast, but hopefully will be more widely available sometime soon. Brian, what have you got in your diary? Yeah, this was this uh, this was all imp- impromptu. We did not plan this. Uh, this is like an ad read for Film Independent again, but I also watched a documentary that is nominated for an indie spirit. Uh, what? And I am, this shows how far behind I am because this, uh, this was from Sundance 2023, but I finally watched Kokomo city and it was great. It is a, it comes from D Smith. This is one of those films that, so I like many, I think there's a reason why we're all watching documentaries this week. I think that this is the time when we start to catch up on the categories that we might have overlooked or like there are surprises that come in. Kokomo City, I don't it was not a surprise for um for landing in the Indie Spirit Awards, but it's very much deserved. And I I loved it. I I it was a, a great, great film. It follows four black trans sex workers in Atlanta and New York. And it's shot in black and white. It's it's basically a testimonial, but they are so at home with the person behind the camera that is D. Smith. And in that regard, it reminds me a lot of those seminal documentaries like Paris is Burning, where it's it just becomes about the people and they're just telling their life stories and you're spending time with them. And it is it is phenomenal. I, I loved it. Yeah, I, I just want to back you up, Brian. I caught it at Virtual Sundance last year, and I agree it was totally phenomenal. It even it won the next Innovator Award and the next Audience Award for director D. Smith, which, hey, That brings us to this year's Sundance. It is time to get the skinny from one of our people on the ground in Park City. But before before we dive into Sundance 2024 proper, Adesila, welcome. Could you please tell us a recent 2024 award nominee that you've caught up with this January? 
Okay, thank you for that introduction, Mia. Good to be here. Um, 2024 recent nominee. I know that we're harping on Film Independent Spirit Awards. I'm really excited for Monica Sorrell. She was nominated for the Someone to Watch Award uh, for her feature film Mountains, which is this fabulous exploration of this demolition worker and his family life in Miami. Um, he makes his living and supports his family by demolishing you know, homes in the community. But when somebody comes and tries to reclaim their property, he's kind of in this nexus of what to do both interpersonally, politically, what it means to him to belong to as many communities. So I'm so excited for Monica and also for that lead actor in the film who's nominated for his performance as well. So those are some of the excellent recent nominees from the Oscars and the Indie Spirits. But, 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 but what about some recent 2024 Sundance winners? Adesila, I'm going to throw it back to you because you are the expert. You were there. You were there. there. You were in the room. You were in the room at the Sundance (laughs) Awards. Like most people go to Sundance for like the first four or five days. You... You did the full thing. I did the full thing. I was there for the whole gambit and I was so grateful to be there. Um, It was fabulous. There are four titles in particular that come to mind. I really, really loved uh, Little Death. It was Jack Bridget, who's a music video director, acclaimed in like the Los Angeles, you know, artist scene. He, in a lot of ways, you know, is a voice onto his own, but kind of reminds me of Spike John, someone who's like fabulous at music video storytelling and making, but then bust out these wonderful features Spike John's made where the wild things are the film adaptation 2011 and I think in a similar sense Jack's film Little Death which is his debut feature it's kind of these two different Los Angeles stories sutured together it's also him teaming up again with Dominic Fike who he's done a lot of extensive music video work for um, there's other wonderful actors David Schwimmer Gabby Hoffman Talia Ryder and the film just happens to kind of go in all of these directions that you can't quite anticipate it's funny as well when Jack was accepting the next innovator award at the 2024 Sundance Film Festivals he walked down you know to the podium after getting all of this applause and was like I'm so surprised based on what people have been saying on Letterboxd I did not think I was going to get this award Uh, (laughs) Um, (laughs) sorry I'm looking and it's like it's got a 2.9 average rating out of Sundance on Letterboxd it's wild I think that's where the innovation you know to the title of the award comes from he's plays around so much with format and with style. You know, the first half of the movie, you think you're watching one thing, but then the second half, we go to this totally other space. And I think that it's the willingness to kind of suture these different stories together, kind of in the breadth of like a Place Beyond the Pines kind of film that is actually very exciting. That coupled with like this naturalistic dialogue, beautiful aesthetics, you know, you can really tell... But the film came from somebody who like loves and cares about movies and music videos. Okay, so next I'll talk about DD uh, by Sean Wing, also a debut feature. It won the Audience Award and the Special Jury Award for Best Ensemble. And it was sweet. Included in that is um, Shang Li Hua, who is his grandmother <laughs> in real life. It was beautiful kind of seeing her like dance on the red carpet, but also be, I don't know, lauded and appreciated both in, like um, at the festival, but in the world of the film for her performance. There's kind of this meditation within the film. You know, it's a first generation coming of age story about a Taiwanese American boy whose big sister is about to go away for college. And he's trying to figure out where he belongs in his friends groups with these skaters that he's like, with this girl that he likes. And I was so kind of taken by Didi because it's set in 2008. And around that time, I myself was coming of age. There's all this wonderful pop punk music and the soundtrack and these like California suburban aesthetics. (laughs) I'm there. Added to watch list. (laughs) 
Motion City soundtrack is in the film. And that was what? one of the first bands I can remember being obsessed with. <gasps> so to see it in a movie, but about this teenager, I was crying in the theater. The theater, uh, the film also opens with I'm a Cuckoo by Bell and Sebastian. And any <gasps> song off of oh. Dear Catastrophe Waitress will always, will, <laughs> will always make me excited. So for any Letterbox users that have like films featuring Bell and Sebastian right under 500 Days of Summer, Juno? you know. Juno, true. Juno, lest ah. we forget. That's true. Piazza. <laughs> Piazza New York catcher. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've talked to a couple people about Dee Dee and they were comparing it. They called it Ladybird meets Super Bad. <laughs> Adesula, do you agree? It's a very accurate hybridization. It has these like wonderful, sweet moments. There's also the mother in Dee Dee is the mother in Saving Face for anyone who loves like sapphic <gasps> films. Joan Chen of Twin Peaks. Joan Chen. It's Joan That's Chen. Right. Of- oh, I love Joan Chen. And she's great. They're also the older sisters played by Shirley Chen, who's so great. And Beast Beast is an indie film that came out in 2020 about like high school and theater and school shooters, which is such a hybrid of themes unto itself. But I think she does such a great job as the older sister in this film. So that Best Ensemble Award, not surprising to me at all, very deserved. Also in the room, Sean was very overcome with emotion, um, I think, to be honored in this way, which was beautiful to see. You also really loved, you told me that you loved In the Summers, which uh, won not only the directing award, but also the grand jury prize, the whole shebang. Yeah, Yeah. Alessandra La Corazza. Yeah, he's a really talented filmmaker who uh, I actually, it it was this kind of weird serendipitous thing. We were both at a party in New York. Someone was like, yeah, Alessandra's going to Sundance. I was like, oh, cool, I'm going to Sundance. And they were like, Alessandra's going to Sundance with a film. And I was like, I have to see this film. (laughs) It's a wonderful like father-daughter story. It follows these two um, daughters visiting their father over successive summers over the course of the film. But the father who's played by Residente, which is this wonderful reggaeton um, rapper from Puerto Rico, he plays the father Vicente. And he's kind of struggling with alcoholism, struggling with showing up fully embodied as a parent, as a father, but it's so clear that he deeply loves his children. So kind of watching this relationship unfold over the course of years, you know, what does it mean to be fluent and understanding how to dote on and care about a child but once they kind of blossom into their own personhood and their individuality outside of you and if you don't recognize them especially seeing them so infrequently you know what do you do with the mix of all of that how is love expressed or suppressed um so it's a lot of like sweet family moments and these like lilting lingering scenes where they're I don't know at a fair and then somebody happens to vomit in a trash can or they're trying to dance together at a party but maybe what it means in a gendered sense to like dance with your father resonates less and less over time so all of these kind of like um beautiful detailed introspective meditations on like family life and the relationship between a child and and their parent Lastly, one that really stuck out for me was Kneecap. Oh, yeah. (laughs) And that won the Audience Award for Next. I love Kneecap not only because of its musicality. First, I guess I'll start with the premise. It's this wonderful film about these Irish rappers who are rapping in Irish to preserve like the existence of the language. And there's this like, as they're kind of doing their musical come up um, within the film, there's this like jukebox musical element where you're watching their songs get produced and made and performed for their, you know, growing number of fans. But you're also seeing one of their main producers who's in this beautiful romantic relationship with a local organizer who's trying to advocate for the preservation of Irish in schools and everyday life. And I didn't even know before seeing the film that there's only about 80,000 speakers, but there's such a sense of connection between the language and their 
political identity in the world. Um, Michael Fassbender plays the father of one of the rappers. So you get to see him kind of popping in and out of um, that character's life. Um, a lot of beautiful sequences of just Technicolor kind of party culture, what it feels like to be at a rap show. And I had the great pleasure of accidentally sitting next to the rap duo Kneecap during my screening. <laughs> oh yeah, because this is this is what we haven't made clear to listeners who who haven't come across this film yet is that this is not a it is a narrative film but it yeah. is a is it a it's a semi-autobiographical scripted jukebox musical about a real Irish rap duo and their producer yes and and, and then Michael Fassbender plays their you know fictional dad it's just it's just brilliant like the meta-ness of it all I love I agree and I think all of the elements come together in such like a particular but distinct and confident way that makes you I don't know, feel intrigued, if not like allured by like their charisma, let alone their actual music. So I think there's so many ways where you can watch movies about musicians. And if you don't care so much about the genre or the sound, then maybe you'll be distanced or divorced from the actual narrative. But the music's actually great. And the boys are so like interesting to watch them just move through the world and through their world. Such a wild ride. It was the first big sale out of Sundance. Sony Pictures Classics picked it up, which is to me, quite a wild pairing, but uh, I, I think is a hope that it will meet more audiences uh, than perhaps they imagine going in because it's just brilliant. Now, those are some some of the awards winners from uh, from Sundance 2024. You can find out what won awards and add them to your watch list uh, on through our Best in Show newsletter. But Gemma, we already have an interview with one award winner we haven't brought up. Who's that? We do. Uh, Leo Koziol, who's our Indigenous editor here at Letterboxd, uh, He's watched Sugarcane, loved it, sought out Julian Brave Noise Cat and Emily Cassie for an interview. And then they went on to win the directing award for US Documentary. So you can check out that interview on Journal. Let's bring it back, bring it back to the Oscars. This is Best in Show. We are, we are getting back into sunny Los Angeles, uh, away from the slopes. Uh, but in the slopes of Park City, Odessa, you got Letterbox members a little shout out from Napoleon Dynamite co-writer Jerusha Hess for her first Oscar nomination for the short film 95 Senses. Yes, indeed. I was present at the 20th anniversary screening of Napoleon Dynamite and got to speak with cast and crew who were part of bringing that film to life in 2004. And I got to speak with Jerusha Hess, who claims or credited rather Letterboxd with people speaking about the film, sharing the film, knowing the film. Um, yeah, let's listen to Jerusha now. Golly, I got to thank Letterboxd for that because it was voted really well on Letterboxd. But we just found out yesterday morning that um, it's been nominated for an Oscar for the animated shorts. And it's unbelievable. It's equal to getting into Sundance to get into the Oscars. And we couldn't be more humbled and appreciative for everyone who voted and, and got it there. But yeah, it's a cool short movie. We're really proud of it. Might be like the most important movie we've ever made. Adesala, thank you so, so much for being our Sundance correspondent for about 10 billion reasons, one of which is I am so useless in the cold. So on that note, I have one final question for you, which is how the heck did you stay warm during your time at Park City? Wow. Um, I think it was the blessed company of so many wonderful friends. I wore a lot of heat tech. I also went to film school in Scotland and I know that you got to layer up, baby. You cannot feel yes. antagonized by the winter. You just have to prepare and uh, honor her. Yes. And your beret, of course. I loved oh. your neon beret. <laughs> 
That's true. <laughs> heat yes. heat mostly leaves your body through your head and your ass. So if you're warm in yes. those places, you'll be good. <laughs> yes. Shout out smart costume design, which is actually our next topic. So we got to dive into that mailbox right now. But Adesila, will you come back afterwards for winner, winner, chicken run dinner? I'll be there. I'll be there. Yes. Okay. See you soon. Now let's go behind the dressing room curtain for a costume change. I gotta put on some cowboy boots and a Stetson to meet Killers of the Flower Moon costume designer Jacqueline West. While I do that, can someone please read our mailbag question? This one comes from Liam. Hello, Best in Show team. This week, one of the topics is costume design, and my question is... What makes good costume design usage in contemporary films stand out from costume design usage in period films? I recently read an interview with the costume designer for Past Lives, and she talks about all the subtleties in the characters' clothes and how they reflect their current mind state. I think having her outfits hint at the cosmic connections is another one of the many fascinating layers about this movie. This type of costume design, while not as loud and spectacular as some of the outfits from Poor Things, is still just as carefully planned and also worthy of praise. Are we more appreciative of costume design in films that don't reflect what we wear in everyday life? Thanks for talking movies, Liam. Oh, thanks, Liam, for your lovely question. And yes, the stats stack up with what you're saying is that I don't know if it's that we are more appreciative, but the Academy certainly tends to vote in favor of period costume overall over contemporary period and also fantasy, I guess. Um, well, the thing is, we went to a professional for a longer answer to your question. We didn't talk specifically about past lives because we were talking to the costume designer of Killers of the Flower Moon. Uh, But Jacqueline West, who is that costume designer in question, has done a lot of both in her extensive career, period, and contemporary. Uh, So we did take this question to her to talk about like what she calls big skirt costuming and period costume in general versus more contemporary film styling. Uh, Mia, are you are you are you ready to come out of your wardrobe yet? Yeehaw! I am back in the perfect hat and perfect cowboy boots. Sorry that the listeners cannot see them. You will just have to trust me. Um, okay, so. Jacqueline West, yes. She has been nominated for five Oscars, including Quills, Curious Case of Benjamin Button, The Revenant, Dune, and now Killers of the Flower Moon. But, 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 you may also recognize her contemporary clothing work from The Social Network. That's right. She is the woman behind Zuck's sad little t-shirts and hoodies. Please welcome costume connoisseur Jacqueline West. You are, of course, an Oscar-nominated for Killers of the Flower Moon. But, importantly, what was the first prize or ribbon or medal you ever won in your life? And what was it for? Oh, my word. Most outstanding scholar when I was in junior high. (laughs) Okay, genius. Of my school and then valedictorian of my high school class. So so no pressure, Mia, you or I. 
Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. We're here with a certified genius. Okay. Well, I mean, that shows in your work. I mean, you are clearly a, like a scholar and a historian and, and it really, really, really comes through. So I'm curious about what the film was that maybe made you want to get into costume designing, one that made a big impact on you. Oh, that's a terrible question. <laughs> Uh, I never, I went to, I went to Berkeley to go to medical school Wow! when everybody was reading, you know, Sartre and uh, D.H. Lawrence and Henry Miller and Ani East Nin, I was reading science books and all of a sudden that time in history, I did not want to do that. So I studied art history and got two degrees, romance languages and art history. (gasps) I ended up somehow by hook or by crook in the fashion world, right? And had my own clothing line, my own department in Barney's. And uh, it happened that my husband was really good friends with Philip Kaufman, who directed The Right Stuff and Unbearable Lightness of Being. And he once said to James, Jackie should be in the film business. He said with her eye and her knowledge and everything, he said, you, we, he, so he hired me to design Henry and June, but he couldn't get me in the union. So I did, I was my, my first, uh, I still have my clothing company and my department in Barney's and everything. I thought, oh, I can do both. This is easy, you know? And, <laughs> uh, and then I couldn't get a costume design credit. So the second film, cause I wasn't in the union. And so I got overall consultant to the direct artistic consultant to the director was my credit on Henry and June. So he said, the next movie I'm doing, I'm getting you in the union. It was a big Sean Connery film, uh, but it was, that was, uh, you know, contemporary. So then when he decided to do Quills, he said, I want you to do it. And I said, I'm not going to costume in the land of the costume designers when it's my second movie. And then I got nominated. So (laughs) it was a funny, funny road to it because of Phil Kaufman, I kind of started, you know, where most people try to to get, but I put in all my dues in the fashion business for years. Well, I was, I was going to ask you about your collaboration with Philip Kaufman because yes, Quills was, you were nominated for, uh, for that, uh, French asylum set period drama, which sounds like a, a big challenge, but you nailed it. So I'm curious, you know, that was in 2001. So how has your journey through this award season gauntlet kind of evolved over the past 20 or so years? Well, this is my fifth, um, uh, nod. And I never have ever thought about it on one film. You never, I don't think any of the designers that I know that I'm friends with, we never approach it that way. Like, oh, I'm going to do a really good job on this and then try to get an Oscar. You know, it's the last thing in your mind. You really just want to reveal the characters and give the directors their vision. You know, they've been sitting with it way longer than you by the time they've hired you. And you have to figure out you have to kind of be a, you know, a clairvoyant, a psychologist, uh, an art historian, uh, a reader, uh, all those things, I think, to be a good designer. You have to figure out what their vision is. And then you have to help the actors to get there by dressing them correctly. Awards are the last thing you think of. I, I remember I almost fell out of bed when Mary Parent called me on The Revenant that I did with Leo because those clothes were so dirty and dark and greasy. <laughs> I thought, you know, they always, there's that big skirt theory. You've got to have a big skirt movie to get, 
recognized, right? <laughs> when I, I interviewed Marty a couple months ago and we chatted about that exactly, the importance of listening and collaboration, which you did with Julie O'Keefe, the Osage costume consultant, yeah. um, whom Chief Standing Bear actually recommended. So I know you usually work a little more insularly, uh, mostly just communicating with the project's director. So I, I do want to ask you about that collaboration and how that enhanced both your experience and the final film. Well, it was, uh, I, I just got Julie an agent because I've decided that that is the way to go. If you were going to try to really recreate a people's that people aren't familiar with, we never learned about the Osage in school, I think, because of what happened. And I think it's just so crucial that you get somebody who really understands their culture. I had a consultant on the Revenant, but he was like an outdoor mountain man consultant. Like, you know, would this really keep someone warm and 40 below, that kind of thing. But I'd never had a cultural consultant. And when uh, I was approached by one of the producers that uh, that uh, Chief Standing Bear was offering me a consultant, I went, hmm, you know, uh, I'm very far into this. You know, is she going to like, you know, we've already done a lot. You know, is she going to start picking it apart. But I, from the time she walked into the office and saw the amount of research I had done and um, what was up and what we were already making, she, we, we won her over already, you know, cause she knew our heart was in the right place. But then she brought to me the most incredible artisans, the most incredible um, uh, ideas and photographs beyond what I even had. But what she was most valuable for, because I love my collaboration with her, and I just, it, it made this film a different experience than I've ever had, and we've gotten to be very close friends through this, and I love her to pieces. Like I said, I just got her an agent at my agency, because I think she should work on other, other films. Uh, she's incredible, incredible artist's eye. Uh, she has good taste. She's articulate. But the real, real uh, thing was you don't see in a photograph, which I had thousands, probably 2,000 pieces of research up in my my airplane hangar workspace um, in Oklahoma. It's the nuance of how to wear things. Like you can photograph of all the sisters, but they have their blankets all turned one way. But if you're in a different circumstance, or you're going to see your guardian or you're going to um, a baby naming or a christening or a, a picnic or a wedding, you're going to wear your blanket a different way or not mm. wear a shawl. And Julie understood the nuance of that. And one wonderful moments that I've had with both Julie and uh, we talked about it the other night in the Q&A, the three of us, was uh, they were closed rehearsals at, every morning. And then Julie would come back. Julie. Um, Lily would come back to her trailer and I would send Julie to see just the two of them talk about what the action was. And I tried to not get involved. I had the pieces. I knew what she was going to wear in the scene. Marty had seen it all. But how would you wear that shawl by what you're doing? Would you wear the shawl? Would you wear a blanket? Mm -hmm. You know, and had a, I made her a closet and they could pull things out, you mm -hmm. know, 
And Marty trusted me because he knew I'd really been doing a ton of research, you know, that I had Julie. And he trusted that she would, uh, I think it was very, uh, I think it was really comforting for Marty to know that Julie was with me and that we weren't going to make mistakes, that weren't going to be intentional mistakes, but not just not knowing the subtleties. Yes, and I think that that nuance and that eye for detail is really one of the central tenets of all of your work throughout your career, and especially how you employ this method costuming idea where authenticity and history are so, so highly valued. I'm I'm thinking of when you gave Kate Winslet a copy of a French painting to give her a feel for her Quills character. So you've mentioned all this archival material you have. What were you giving to Lily Gladstone to help her fully inhabit Molly? Um. What I did was I actually put some frame pictures of Molly up with her, her by herself and with her sisters, you know, and uh, that were really inspiring for me. And uh, one was even a piece of needlepoint that someone had done of Molly and that I found in an old uh, antique shop in Tulsa. And uh, I tried to make it like Molly's real bedroom on her trailer I did this for Jessica Chastain on Tree of Life, and she's found me at different awards since then and said that now she makes every costume designer make her closet. Because in the 50s, people had so few clothes, right? Three house dresses, one go to church outfit, one go out in the evening with your husband outfit. But how you put those together, or whether you wore an apron, while you were vacuuming, you know, all of that. it, it all makes you feel like the character. So I made Jessica a bedroom with a closet, with the same size closet in a 1950s house that she would have had, you know, at the O'Brien's house in Texas. And she said that's always now, she would go in in the morning by the same token after rehearsing with Terry, she would go in in the morning and get dressed wow. by what she was going to be doing with the boys. And sometimes Terry would ask for things, you know, uh, certain dresses that he loved on her. But it was all in keeping with that closet. But so I did the same. I just remembered that. And I did the same for Lily. And I thought she's the most traditional. I'm only going to have traditional things in her closet. uh, And I'll let her decide whether she wants to wear moccasins or shoes that day by what she is feeling with the character. Because she's such an incredible actress. And she was so into the into the role and into the character, I would forget, I would call her, I would actually call her Molly and not Lily, you know? And then it becomes like my husband once said to me when I said, I'm not going to do quills. I'm a thoroughly modern Millie. I'm a fashion designer. Right. And, and I said, rising sun's one thing, you know, that's high fashion, Los Angeles models, you know, I said, but quills, I said, I'm a modern Millie. And he said, you're an art historian. He said, you read that script five times at least, then you take, you know who the character is, then you take them shopping in that era and you're not doing anything different than you do in your clothing line. (laughs) Molly's cotton shirts, those beautiful traditional cotton shirts with the three buttons at the front, so glorious. I mean, they need to be a whole line of clothing in themselves, please. Um, But what I found so beautiful is that until she's found by the FBI men and taken to the hospital, those shirts, although colourful, you know, different blush pinks and blues are plain rather than patterned. And then once she's moving back into her power, they become patterned and glorious as if there's sort of, there's a rebirth, there's flowers, there's, there's spring 
on her very person. That was a good. That was a good sight. <laughs> uh, it was a totally good notice. Yeah, that's exactly what what I did. What I had planned. It's a you know a subliminal thing. Killers of the Flower Moon. It's those little tiny flowers that bloom at one time on the prairie uh, <gasps> that Rodrigo was able to catch and actually photograph them. It's, it's just, uh, the flower moon. It's a certain time that these little prairie flowers all bloom at once. And it's like, you have to catch it. It's like within a two day period and then they, they wilt and die, but it's particular to that part of the country. But the Osage, before they even moved to Oklahoma, loved those little, flowered patterns and those calicos with the little flowers on them. I also used them a lot in the revenant. They were a trade item mm. for um, people coming to trade with the native, different native nations. They would come and trade for skins and pelts or rite of passage through their lands. And they would bring them. There were certain trade items that were common to all the, the different plains nations um, the calico cottons, the satins and the silks that she wears that are solid, uh, they're from France. And French ribbons, the moray ribbons or the um, satin ribbons, we used a lot, rolls and rolls and rolls of them in the movies because the Osage were quite unique in their, in their fashion. You could tell their fashion is different than any other Plains tribe. I've done the Pawnee in The Revenant. They wore the flowered shirts, but not decorated. They didn't use the wabankas. They didn't. the The Osage took peace medals whenever a, whenever a peace medal was given them. You knew that those peace medals would be uh, the, that that treaty would be broken because that's what we did, and that they would melt them down and make jewelry out of them. The armbands, the headbands on the wedding hats. Um, the Wabanka pins, the ball and cone earrings, they were all unique to the Osage. And I had never, ever seen these same trade items that were traded up and down the Great Plains and across the United States. Those certain trade items that they felt natives loved, they brought with them. The, the trappers, the uh, traders, the trading posts had them, but the Osage made them their own and made them unique. Mm -hmm. and no one does a wedding coat, but the Osage, no one, wears, no tribe wears the Wabanka pins. Um, they, you know, the Sioux incorporated a lot of silver into their, um, you know, uh, not so much. They use more leather and beads, but even the, the beads, most native tribes would do intricate designs with the beads the the osage made the beautiful twisted necklaces of one color they had a real it's a really different elegance i i felt when i got really dressed for the wedding i was dressing the native american marie antoinette it's it's absolutely extraordinary and it's also something that is so evident in in killers of the flower moon is is the difference between the, the masculine and the feminine in terms of fashion. I think that's why Mia and I both love um, Molly's wedding look so much because it's, mm. it's, it is the moment where she steps into that masculine military <laughs> coat. But while we're on that and, and, and men and the men's costumes, we need to talk hats, Jacqueline. We need to talk 
hats. Sometimes, um, you know, costume is part of character, but uh, there are a few moments in this film where costume literally services character development in, in all of the senses. And I'm thinking uh, one moment, I'm going to mention two specific moments, but one is when Ernest takes off his his boyish, schlubby newsboy cap and puts on that pale new Stetson that Molly gifts him. I mean, that is a moment, right? It, it, it says so much about both both of them. Um, how was that presented in the script? And how many hats did you go through before you settled on that particular Stetson? And was it made especially? So many questions. Talk us through that moment. Well, I very particularly put him in the newsboy hat and the suit that the we handmade it was very uh, copied from a Sears catalog for the cap <laughs> look, right? Because I figured that's what he would have had, you know, something simple, understated, but new because he p- didn't have anything with him. And um, that ha- I had to think that through. But then when she gives him the hat, I had done a really a lot of research on the different hats that were worn at that period of time by the Osage, which hats they ordered and which hats they, of course, the Osage man in his style, I told you, wore the dome, but they would buy hats that they would, you know, from Stetson and from, they had hat makers too. Uh, And I decided I didn't want it just to be a Stetson movie. And I have a house in Deadwood, South Dakota, and a good friend of mine, he's in the, He's, they actually photographed him uh, in the GQ article when they called it Hat Movie of the Year. That he, he's a friend of my husband's and he lives in Belfouche and he has owns weather hats that have been making hats since 1911. And his father, I mean, his grandfather made hats for John Wayne in the early John Wayne films and for Tom Mix. And Tom Mix was from Pahuska, right? So I decided that would be the Tom Mix hat that she gives him. She isn't going to give him the black dome because he's not Osage. And I had to really think of what, and I tried, um, I had Jack, Jack hat, I call him, (laughs) Uh, um, from Weathermaker hats. Uh, And he, I had him send me different. He had all the molds from the 1920s. And all the forms, the hat blocks. And he it's just amazing, his workshop in Belfouche, South Dakota. Like I said, he made John Wayne's hats in his early career. He made me that hat, and that would be, was the opening. Then I started making Leo other hats, right? He has the boss of the planes. He has the open, uh, no, the open road was Bob De Niro. That was the rancher's hat. Uh, but different, the the um, cattleman's crease, the, you know, they're all, they're, they all have names. And I started looking at a lot of pictures of Tom Mix because he was exactly, you know, Leo's age at the time when he was living in Pahaska and what hats he wore. Mm-hmm. And so much of his wardrobe I based on him because there aren't pictures of Leo's character. There's a lot more of Molly, not a lot of him. So I had to use my imagination on him. and draw from things that would be available in Pahuska and in Grey Horse for him at the time, as far as bespoke suits and um, that kind of thing. But they all had their own hats. If you notice, Tom, uh, the man with the hat himself. 
(laughs) That was a hat he actually wore. That character actually wore in a lot of photographs of the Texas Rangers. And he was the only one J. Edgar Hoover let wear a cowboy hat. Yes, I was going to say, and he wears it indoors. He wears it at all times. Mm-hmm. It's got the the side turns, and it was just like, okay, this guy, he is serious. He means business. Yeah, you know, there's just there's uh, there's so much in it. But um, I mean, a- another very very important piece of uh, accessorizing that that uh, Mia and I both noticed is in Best Supporting Actor nominee Robert De Niro. Mia, do you want to talk about this? Oh, I, I, I would love to. I would love to. deeply about it. It's yeah. terrifying. His character's goggles, the way that they evoke that owl, which is the Osage symbol of death, it is just such a great detail because it's combining, you know, authenticity and stylistic yeah. flourish without losing, you know, grounding in reality and facts. Um, so I am just very curious about what went into making those. I assume you you made it specially for him, correct? Yes. Yeah, my wow. workroom made those goggles, but it's one of the first things I showed Bob and Marty, actually, because going back to the movie, I told you that uh, because I kind of came of age in the Pacific Film Archives in Berkeley, I remembered, I recalled this one film, actually, my husband reminded me of it, that Tom played for me once called The Winning of Barbara Worth. And it's a 1926 film, so it was made in 24. It was perfect for this period. I based his Leo's Western look on Gary Cooper in that movie. And but Ronald Coleman, who was a similar kind of character, right? Yes, was what I based um, Bob on, and Bob loved it. And it's that beautiful crossover. This movie. It's, I call it Jackie West Western, my first Western. But it's when the horse and the car are on the road at the same time. And it was very dusty. The streets were still dirt. And when you rode in an open-air car, you were hit with clouds of dust. And at one point, Ronald Coleman's being pulled through the desert or, you know, out by his place where he's doing business by horses, the car's being pulled by horses because it can't get through the sand and the dirt. And he's got goggles on. And I thought, oh, that's perfect. It's the symbol of the angel. It's everything that you mentioned. Wow. Oh, I want to talk to you forever, but we are tragically running out of time. Um, so I, I read about how you would consult Osage Home Movies, which is so special because they were actually wealthy enough to make the home movies and there weren't very many people who had the money to do that so that's just first off very interesting and it also got me thinking about you know who gets to tell history whose materials will survive um you know many many years into the future and you're a historian yourself so I'm curious about your perspective I guess on the privilege of who gets to tell these stories well I was an incredible history student and I when I went Terry Malick lived in, in Bartlesville for a long time, and he, I was walking down the street with, um, uh, with Marshall and Elena's husband, and he, I said, who, who are the Osage? You know, walking down the street Alaska, and he said, oh, he said, they were the richest per capita people in the world. So only the Osage and the royal family in England could afford home movies in the 1920s at $1,800 a minute. Mm. So they documented their lives with them. And I think I was first aware of them. Marianne Bauer said, 
and just talking to her, she's an incredible researcher too, Marty's producer, and wonderful, and sent me fabulous pieces of research. Sometimes we'd overlap, you know, but we start sharing with each other. And I've done 10 movies with Jack Fisk. So a legend. He's a legend. And it became a huge pool of data. And we looked at those home movies because they were so telling things that you don't see in a photograph, you know, uh, how they wore their clothes, you know, just how they moved in them, how they, you know, and it was really fun taking screen grabs and showing the different actors. You are that person, you know, and then playing a little video, a clip from it. So that was an incredible part of our research with the home films. You know, I keep thinking about the chief's words in the film, we never prayed for the great life. We just prayed for life. And that's, that's what the film has left me with. In what way, Jacqueline, were you transformed by this work? Uh, I think by the people I met, by the, um, and I've worked with some, some great, great actors, directors, and every, every movie kind of is your favorite, but this was time travel for me. Movies are time travel for me. That's why I've done so many period movies, even Argo, because it was back to the seventies I loved. And I think this was time travel on a different level is the people who actually were part of this story were taking part of it, were taking part in it, both in collaborating as consultants to Marty, to me, to Jack. I'll never forget Addie Roanhorse, who became, has become a good friend of mine, brought me pictures of Henry Roan, who's the one who gets shot in the front of the head, I mean, in the back of the head instead of the front. Uh, that was her great, that was her grandfather. And she brought me pictures of him sitting in the moon, mm, yes. which no one had ever seen. It was a family photo, like a tourist photo of him. And we reproduced it perfectly in the movie, right, to, to Jack. Yeah. And everybody, when we were shooting those stills with uh, so many people were involved whose family had been part of it and how, how moved they all were. And how they wanted to share with me all this really personal stuff. I've never been on a film like it in my life. And I think I've the best part of it is that I've forged relationships with people I think I'll be friends with always. Chief Standing Bear, and a quick story about Chief Standing Bear. He found me one night and he said, someone told me you're from Berkeley. And he said, I ran the student newspaper at the University of Oklahoma, and I based it on the Berkeley Barb. <gasps> and I said, wow. oh my God, friends with Max Shear. I dated his son forever. I <laughs> dinner at his house every day. So Chief Standing and there, I had this great connection. And I, I always, every party, everything I've been to, we go find each other right away. And just, just have that connection. Julie, Addie Roanhorse, I mean... The friends I made on this movie, I think, will be friends for the rest of my life. So that's what I took from it. Film is about friends. So, my friends, welcome 
to Winner Winner Chicken Run Dinner, where we all yap about what award-nominated movie of history we watched this week. Me first. Here we go. I have been going to American Cinematheque's Edward Yang retrospective, so I was able to catch Taipei Story and The Terrorizers, which both have a 4.1 on Letterboxd, but I'm going to talk about Yi Yi because that one has a 4.5 average star rating, and it is currently number 11 in our official top 250. So I got to see this at the Egyptian theater with my friend Ariel, and we wept our eyes out at the end. And I keep just going on melancholic walks and being reminded of this movie and being struck by all the beauty in the world. It is like a three-hour epic, but it's so tender. God, I can't even talk about it. It's just it's just all about life and all of its sad and funny moments. And uh, Edward Yang won Best Director at Cannes. And my favorite awards body, the Clotrudis Awards, which have those little kitty cats as their logos, um, they nominated it for Best Cast, Best Movie, and Best Original Screenplay. So, yee yee. Hashtag Edward Yang Gang. Rise up. <laughs> <laughs> the one true Yang Gang. The one true uh, Gemma, Yang Gang. One true Yang Gang. Gemma, what were you up to? Oh, Yee Yee is permanently on my watch list. I got to get it off there somehow. I will find the time after this award season. But um, speaking of time and being time poor, I spent this week actually watching a whole bunch of shorts, including one that's on Netflix right now and, and totally worth watching right now and any time of year, but right now. Farah Nabulsi's The Present, uh, which is a short film that won the BAFTA for Best British Short and was nominated for the Oscar for Best Short Film Live Action um, back in 2020. It is a film about a man who needs to go shopping to get a present for his wife for their anniversary. Oh. Um, and that is complicated uh, by the um, the vagaries uh, and unpredictability of living in a um, in a state uh, that is overseen by a neighboring state. Um, what can I say? Well, actually, what Bex Panther says in her letterbox review, when I tell you I felt this man's pain as he struggled through the day, the way he's able to articulate just how much pain he is in while having to keep it together because colonizers literally control their daily lives, deserves an award. And it, it, it did indeed win awards. Um, the lead actor, the, the man in pain himself, Saleh Bakri, he is one of several, uh, can I say, extremely handsome acting children of <laughs> Palestinian directing great Mohammed Bakri. And um, so I have the teacher, his, his next feature film, and Farah's next feature film, actually, on my watch list. It's doing the first rounds at the moment, and I can't wait to see it. Um, but the present you can see on Netflix right now. Brian, what you got? I'm going back to the Spirit Awards. Have we <laughs> forgot about them? We haven't talked about them for about half an hour. So we're, we're going back to the Spirit Awards, our buddies. Uh, not only because they're our buddies, but because another buddy. We're just tying it back to friends mm. here now. But uh, Mitchell's excellent interview with John Sales went up on Letterboxd last week. You can read it uh, in the link in bio or journal notes. Uh, so because of that, I decided to show my wife Limbo because she was on a survivalist kick after we watched Society of the Snow and The Impossible together. And I've loved this movie for a very long time. And the only community that I've found that loves it as well is Letterboxd. But I guess in looking up, so it did. It was nominated for two Spirit Awards for Best Male Lead, David Strathairn. Sexy, sexy, <laughs> Ray Fox, David Strathairn. Uh, and Best Supporting Female, Vanessa Martinez. 
It did win the Golden Space Needle Award for Best Director for John Sayles. So shout out to Seattle. Shout out the PN Dubs. <laughs> <laughs> you know what's up. It's it's set in Alaska. So in some ways it's a little regional. When I lived in Olympia, I knew so many people that would go up to Alaska to fish in the summer because that's where you, they would make all their money to live for the year. Um and it's about the fish. It's about a limbo is about a fishing community in Alaska. And it's hard to talk about this film until people have seen it because what is so amazing about it is how the ending reinforces the start. It is a very, very, very unique use of narrative. It's it's a little bit in there in the title, but John what John Sales does is he he introduces you to this community and all their grievances and how much they know about each other. And it's only to get you to question about what happens in the end. And it is, it is a remarkable storytelling structure. I, I can't recommend it enough if you love uh, an ending that you're not sure what happened. And Adesla, you're back. I'm here. What is a, what, what did you, what's a recent watch from a previous award nominee. Well, you know, I had the wonderful fortune of talking to Raven Jackson uh, for our journal piece on All Dirt Road's Taste of Salt. And I was asking about like, what are some of your films you return to in times of filmmaking? And I was introduced by her to The Scent of Green Papaya. It's this wonderful 1993 film from Vietnam. It's very slow and it's about this relationship between um, a person who works in a home of this other family, but the daily rituals of cleaning, of observing kind of the natural natural landscape, um, just kind of moving through the day. It received the Golden Camera Award or the Camera d'Or at the 1993 Cannes Film Festival. It was uh, nominated, and I think the only film so far from Vietnam that's been nominated for Best International Film at the Academy Awards, where it received a nomination in 1994. And it also received the 1994 César Award for Best Work for the filmmaker Tran An Hung. Um, I love slow movies where not much happens but the vibes, but especially when that's experienced by people of color. And when we get to kind of see people having this relationship with the natural landscape, whether it be the water or the waxy leaves or soap in a bucket. Um, yeah, so I really love the scent of green papaya, especially the romantic ending. And actually, a lot of what you described that you liked about the scent of green papaya you're probably already aware, but if our listeners are not, uh, that filmmaker, Tran An Hung, has a new film that is also about mm-hmm. cooking, that is also about vibes, and is also beautiful uh, relationship and romance that slowly reveals itself. It's coming out next week. It's called The Taste of Things. It is up for, for three Cesar Awards this year. And next week, we'll also have an interview with not just the filmmaker, but Juliette Binoche as well, who stars in mm-hmm. it. I love Juliette Binoche. There are some French actresses whose names I just love to say to myself. You know how people have mantras? (laughs) So like Julie Depi, Juliette Binoche, or Mélanie Larointe. (laughs) Magnifique. Magnifique, magnifique. Names names that are just great to say, Raven Jackson, to just bring it all back because we haven't mentioned the Spirit Awards in about two minutes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so Raven Jackson's All Dirt Road's Taste of Salt is indeed an Indie Spirit Award nominee itself. Yes. So, And with that, we come full circle. Look at that narrative cohesion. Thanks so much for listening to Best in Show and uh, hearing me soliloquize about the movies. I love the movies. 
And thank you, Adesala. We would love for all of you listeners to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify to help spread the word about the show as we get closer and closer to the Oscars. Oh, it's so true. And you can follow us and our Awards HQ on Letterboxd using the link in our episode notes. Our Awards HQ has links to all of the lists that can help you navigate your pre-awards watching to tickle those movies off that you haven't quite yet seen. We also love mail uh, podcast at letterbox.com. If you have any questions, let's hear them about awards, about how they work, about voting, about guilds. Just, you know, send them our way. Uh, Thanks also to our crew, Slim for the edit, as always, Sophie for production, Trent Walton for the music, George Fennick for the newsletter, Danny House for the art, the Letterboxd editorial and social team for Sundance coverage and all of the extra carpet good stuff and Brian Formo for overall producing genius. And thank you, Jerusha Hess, for bringing the film industry to Idaho and everyone for listening. Best in Show is a Tape Deck production. This, this, this is a Tape Deck podcast.